Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. With the snow falling and the holidays right around the corner, you're guaranteed to get some extra chills from the stories this week. I hope that you enjoy them. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My father started drawing strange maps on the wall, written by G. Tripp, 14. She will come to me, blanketed in the stars. I can't tell you how many times I've heard those words over the last decade. My father, Raymond Chandler, suffered a massive stroke and couldn't say anything else afterward. Just those nine words over and over. Well, I guess that isn't entirely true. He said something else at the end, but I'll get to that later. Mom and Dad had worked for NASA when I was a kid. Both had completed multiple missions into space and Mom had actually served on the International Space Station. She died there as a matter of fact. Clara Chandler was the first person in the station's history to lose their life while stationed there. And during a routine maintenance check on some of the external communication equipment, her tether came loose and she drifted into the darkness of space. I was too young to understand exactly what happened, but old enough to understand that she was never coming home. And Dad did the best he could, raising me as a single parent. But I don't think he ever took the time to take care of himself after she died. His hair color faded rapidly. The skin on his face had creased deeply, and he rarely slept. But still, he was a loving man. And do you think Mom was scared? I asked one night as my father tucked me into bed. When she floated away, was she scared? My father smiled that sad smile that came to know all too well. His hand patted me on the head and he placed a stuffed bear next to me on my pillow. No, he said gently. Your mother was a brave woman. Before you were born, we would sit down each night and look at the stars. Nothing made her happier. Now she is with the stars. I think she was very happy that she was able to stay there. Dad suffered a stroke in 2012, just four days before his 58th birthday. What a gift, right? He remained in a coma for nearly a month. I don't want to dredge up all of my memories of his recovery process, but I'll say this. It was rough. Most of his physicians believed that he would stay in a catatonic state for the rest of his life. Regaining his ability to move independently seemed unlikely even if he did wake. Speech, well, that would be gone too, according to these same doctors. Day after day, I would sit at his bedside and read to him. Thriller and detective novels, mostly. He was always so busy with work or taking care of me that he didn't have much time to read. But that didn't stop him from picking up a hardback book and adding it to his never-ending retirement reading pile. I would pull the book from the pile every few days and read it to him. Some of the nurses said that they thought he would hear it. An anchor, some of them had called it. I don't know if I really believe it worked, but it helped to fill the crippling silence of his sterile hospital room. After finishing up our fifth or sixth detective noir... 
I closed the book and set it on the table beside him. Looking at him, I saw his chest rising and falling shallowly. His color was pale and his weight was dropping. With tears in my eyes, I took his frail hand in mine and gave it a squeeze. Gotta head home, Dad, I whispered. I love you. As I began to place his hand back on the white blanket, I felt his muscle tighten around my hand. He squeezed my hand back firmly. Both of his eyes opened lazily and gazed into mine. A croaking noise erupted from his throat. He was trying to talk, but his mouth was too dry. In a panic, I fumbled to the bedside table and poured him a cup of water. Holding it to his mouth, he took small sips and smacked the roof of his mouth with his tongue. A wet cough exploded and I used a Kleenex to wipe spittle away from the corners of his mouth. She will come to me, blanketed, in the stars, he said weakly. I punched the call button beside his bed to alert the nurse. What? I said, my heart thundering in my chest. I couldn't understand your dad. He gripped my hand even more tightly and pulled me toward him. I leaned in closely, placing my ear to his mouth. Hot breath and wheezing filled my ear. She will come to me blanketed in the stars, he said firmly. As he spoke the words, the bright fluorescent lights above the bed sizzled and burned away. After Dad got out of the hospital, I became his full-time caretaker. I had worked as a home healthcare nurse for a number of years, so the transition was pretty natural. His recovery, for the most part, had been incredible. All of his range of motion returned. He could walk on his own. His vision was as good as it had been before the stroke. And basic tasks like tying his shoes and getting dressed presented no issues at all. The only lasting effects were reduced hemiparesis, or weakness on his right side and his inability to communicate anything other than those nine words. She will come to me blanketed in the stars. His doctors said that it was unusual, but not unheard of. How a stroke damages the brain is different for each person. The ability to form and speak full thoughts may return, but it could be weeks or even years. The doctor told us, or it may never improve. It never did. My father could only rattle off that single phrase. He would say it with different voice inflections to express his mood. I didn't always understand what he wanted, but I knew that if he was happy or sad. It could be incredibly frustrating, but I did my best to remain patient and understanding. For a brief time, we thought he may be able to write to communicate his thoughts, but they had proved fruitless. Anytime that you gave him a dry erase board or a pad of paper, he wrote those same words over and over again. Our day-to-day -day life was mostly normal after returning home with one exception. Dad started using chalk to draw enormous star maps on every inch of the walls. The massive designs eventually covered every available inch empty space. As he ran out of space to expand his comprehensive work, he would remove framed photos and paintings from the wall and stack them in the center of the room. 
When he first started, I was confused and concerned about the activity. When I saw that he was drawing star maps, I don't mean he would work in one area of the house until he completed a portion. He would stare at a wall for about a half hour before placing a single dot. And as soon as he had finished, he would walk to another room and repeat the process. After the wall was sufficiently covered in small white markings, I waited until he went to bed one evening and decided to clean the walls. I filled a bucket full of warm water and used a soft sponge to remove the markings. It took me hours to wash them away and return the photos and paintings to their original positions. The next morning when dad had saw them, he was furious. She will come to me, he shouted as he stomped around the living room gesturing toward the clean walls, blanketed in the stars. Dad, I pleaded, they were just little chalk dots. Let's go in the kitchen and have some breakfast, huh? He stormed back to his bedroom and he slammed the door. I could hear him crying as I knocked, but he didn't answer. He didn't come out for the rest of the day. Just sat in his room, whimpering and muttering those same nine maddening words. As a peace offering, I drove to the store that evening while he slept and purchased him a box of chalk. It hadn't occurred to me that although his artwork on the walls it didn't make sense to me, it could be very meaningful to him. It did the trick. The next morning when he came out of his room, I handed him the box of chalk. I'm sorry, I said sincerely. It's your house, and if you want to draw on the walls, then that's okay. He looked down at the box in his hand and smiled. She will come to me, blanketed in the stars. He said, questioningly. Sure, Dad, I responded, blanketed in the stars. Over the next few years, Dad filled the walls with enormous star maps. His pace had quickened and soon the charts bent around the corner of doors and continued into the adjacent room. Some days he would pull huge books from his office and show me photographs of the constellations and the formations as he repeated those echoing words. I knew in his mind that he was explaining to me in great detail which celestial bodies they represented, and I would nod along. He looked so happy, content even. But all I heard were those words. She will come to me blanketed in the stars. Eight years after the stroke and Dad's health was starting to take a turn, he had a more difficult time getting out of bed. Standing for a long period of time was out of the question, and his memory seemed to be slipping a bit. But still, he added to these star charts and the maps. That was also when the light bulb started to burn out repeatedly. Just one at first. The hallway light I would put a fresh bulb in, and within two or three days, the filament inside would be no more than two charred prongs. Soon after, the light bulbs began burning out throughout the house too frequently. My weekly grocery trip always included a few packs of incandescents. I told myself that the old-style bulbs may be the problem, and so we switched to the LEDs. But it only lasted a day or two longer. In frustration, I had an electrician come to the house and check the wiring multiple times, but they never found any issues. Everything worked just like it should. But the bulbs continued to burn out. With Dad's mobility dropping off, we started spending more time at the house. 
where we used to take daily walks or travel to the planetarium. He would spend most of the day reading a book quietly in his armchair. His work on the stars grew less and less. Me, I would spend my day in front of the television. While I was a great student, I never developed the same love for reading that my parents did. The television broke up the monotony of the quiet house. Most nights, I would fall asleep in front of the television. Sometimes I would wake up to see the glow of the TV hitting the tiny chalk dots on the wall. It almost made the little spots sparkle like the night sky, as though my father's artwork had come to life and embodied the very celestial landscape that danced above us. It was in the cascade of light from the television that I first started to see these sinister shapes. I knew that it must have been my imagination, but thin lines seemed to grow between some of the stars, forming ghastly figures. The sleek, hunched, and snarling creatures made of tiny chalk dots seemed to prowl on the illuminated walls. The sounds of cracking plaster and groaning wood filled my ears. A chill would build at the base of my spine as it crawled up to my neck as though I were an unwitting prey animal in the sights of an apex predator. When I would turn the lamp on beside me, the half-dream figures would vanish. Nothing left but the white field of stars. I think my father felt it too. On those nights, I would hear him call out in panic. When I would enter the room, he would be pointing madly from wall to wall and screaming those same nine words. She will come to me, blanketed in the stars. When he got like that, I would have to sit beside his bed until he fell asleep again. The bedside lamp would always have a burnt out bulb, so I would change it. He would hold my hand as he drifted off. It felt so much like when I was a child when I would cry over how much I missed my mother. Dad would hold my hand in the dim lamplight, and then whisper to me about how Mom was so happy among the stars. On the morning of my father's final day, I think I knew that it was near the end. Most of his days he seemed to be filled with fear. He rarely slept unless I sat beside him hand in hand. If I didn't sleep in the chair next to him, I almost always found him on the floor the next morning. He would be clutching a dwindling piece of chalk, crumpled on the floor next to the wall. For the past few weeks, he had been scrawling away at an ornate rectangle. It was beautiful and haunting all at once, like the recording of a lost loved one's voice. It looked almost like a door, though it was nearly nine feet tall. Delicate swirls filled the space between the thick white border. Lighter shades of gray covered the inside carefully smudged inch by inch by my father's shaking hand. He never worked on this during the day, only during the night and only when I wasn't in the room. I purchased a baby monitor for his room for the nights when I was able to sleep in my own bed. The first few times that I saw him wobble across the floor to work on the door, I had run to the room and tried to put him back to bed, but he would become so agitated that I thought we would come to blows. No matter how many times I carried him back to bed, I would see him again on the screen, working away at the door. The rest of his room was covered in more unsettling work. What had once been a field of white chalk stars now had faint lines connecting them. They came together to form the horrific creatures that I had always dreamt of, 
when I sat in front of the television. I never saw my father draw them, but they changed frequently. That morning when I entered my father's room, he was sitting in his armchair. His head was tipped back and his robe dropped open sloppily. When I first saw him, I thought that he had passed away in the night. My heart ached for a moment until I saw him stir. She will come to me, he said groggily, blanketed in the stars. Good morning, Dad, I said. Breakfast is ready. We ate together in the kitchen. Well, I ate. Dad picked at his breakfast and shoveled a few mouthfuls of eggs. He hadn't been eating much and was beginning to look sickly then. His doctor offered IV nutrition regimens and I was sure that that would be the next step. Usually we would sit on the porch after breakfast, but he got up from the table and walked on shaking legs back to his bedroom and he crawled beneath the covers. For a few moments I considered trying to stir him to take him outside for some sunlight, but he seemed so frail so I decided to let him rest. Sometime in the afternoon, I must have drifted off. When I woke up, I could see the streetlights flowing in through the windows, pulling the cord of the lamp beside me. I wasn't surprised to find the bulb was burnt out. Walking groggily to the wall, I flipped the light switch to discover that it was also burnt out. I was heading toward to the cupboard in the kitchen for some fresh bulbs when I heard my father scream. Rushing to his bedroom, I twisted the knob to find it locked. I began to hammer my hand on the door, calling my father's name, but he didn't answer. My ears were filled with his panicked screams and the sounds of things falling heavily to the floor. Dad, I shouted. Dad, unlock the door. You've got to let me in. More screaming than the sound of heavy footsteps. I threw my weight against the door, but the thick wood didn't budge. The hinges would rattle slightly, but the door never gave way. But still, the sounds of terror inside persisted. My phone was still beside the recliner in the living room, so I ran back in to grab it and call 911. As I reached to pick it up, I looked at the screen of the baby monitor and my heart nearly stopped. My father sat in his bed, Blankets pulled up to his chin and shivering violently. His eyes darted side to side at the walls. Glowing orbs that had once been chalk stars danced along the walls which bulged and rippled. Something behind the walls was pushing against them and trying to break through. Abandoning my phone, I ran to the garage and fumbled down the steps, landing hard on the concrete floor. My head was swimming, but I managed to push myself back onto my feet, darting toward the tool bench. I found my father's old hatchet and I ran back to his bedroom door. Blow after blow with the hatchet rained down from above my head. Flecks of paint and chunks of wood peppered my face as I carved away at the door. Inside, I could still hear my father screaming, but now it was mingled with a guttural rumbling, something that filled my heart with dread. After a few moments, I was able to make a hole large enough to put my hand through. Shoving my hand inside, I swatted blindly for the door latch. The rumbling had swollen into deafening roars, completely covering my father's screams of horror. My hand found the lock and twisted it, allowing the door to swing in. 
I could see my father reaching toward me, eyes filled with terror. He was screaming something, but I couldn't hear him against the cracking of plaster and the splintering of wooden beams. I didn't need to hear him to know what he was saying. She will come to me, blanketed in the stars. Dozens of dull lights pushed themselves out of the wall then fumbled onto the floor. They rolled like bowling balls before coming to a stop. The strangest sound from the walls fell silent as the orbs of light began to shake. Slowly, they began to move toward each other before forming an enormous sphere. My father and I stared in awe for a moment at the ball of light in front of us. I was about to call for dad to come with me when the ball cracked like an egg, falling to pieces on the floor. Standing in its place was something unlike anything I had ever seen. It was a creature made of small stars. Delicate lines danced between each of the illuminated dots forming a nightmarish beast. Heavy claws sank into the floor as the celestial beast turned toward me. Two red orbs in the sea of white met with my eyes before the thing erupted in another guttural roar. I raised the hatchet above my head, but a cluster of brilliant white balls swung toward me and connected with my head. The hatchet dropped from my hand as I went sailing through the air, crashing against the wall by the ornate door my father had drawn. The air ejected from my lungs, leaving me struggling to draw breath. The thing turned back toward my father and lowered its stance as it began to move forward. My father screamed and thrashed in the bed as the celestial demon crept closer. It seemed to be preparing to lunge for him when suddenly, the room was filled with intense light. I looked to my side and saw brilliant beams pouring from the outline of the door. The light danced and erupted throughout the delicate latticework my father had drawn. All around us, the air was filled with a sensation of serenity. Even the beast had turned to look. The ornate door on the wall pushed open, flooding the room with overwhelming warmth and light. I wanted to cover my eyes, but the sight was too beautiful and I couldn't turn away. On the floor at the foot of my father's bed, the celestial abomination began to roar and writhe in pain. I looked away from the opening to see the creature melting into a pool of illumination. The waves of warmth and light from the door had driven it back to wherever it had come from, leaving the room in silence. I turned to look at the door again. A woman walked out and into the bedroom. She was so tall, nearly eight feet. Her body was slender and agile, her smile beautiful and serene. Draped over her shoulders and falling to the floor was a silver shawl. Lights danced and sparkled over every inch, shining like stars in the night sky, blanketed in the stars. Leaning down toward me, she placed her hand to my chest and my struggling lungs filled with air. Every ache and pain in my body had faded. I felt no more fear. Only love, only peace. She smiled at me and began to walk toward my father's bed. I looked toward him. He had thrown the blanket to the side and was smiling at the beautiful woman. He shifted a shaking hand toward her and she lifted hers in return. She has come for me, he said. She is blanketed in the stars. The woman took my father's hand. I've missed you, Raymond. 
She said in an ethereally beautiful voice, I do believe it is time to go. Clara, he cooed, I knew that you would come. You're as beautiful as you were in my dreams. My mother and father walked hand in hand toward the door, stopping for only a moment before me. He smiled at me as a single tear rolled down his cheek as my mother bent over and caressed my face. I put my hand over hers for just a moment as she kissed the top of my head. They passed through the door and it sealed shut behind them. I don't know where they went, but that's okay. Wherever they are, they are together, blanketed in the stars. This week's episode is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. We've all been there before. We all have dealt with these Sunday Scaries before. Those oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school tomorrow, or just life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. The Sunday Scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind, super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everyone in between. I don't relax well. I have always been someone that feels like they have to be doing something or accomplishing a task, so it's hard to just shut off my brain and chill. I overthink and I stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So, whether you just need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, sleep better, or just chill. Take two CBD gummies every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Just visit sundayscaries.com and use promo code MRCREEPS for your discount. That's promo code MRCREEPS for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. Fearforlife.com Written by Tropical Rabbit I don't know why I signed up for it. I guess I was just bored and wanted some excitement. Having a weak immune system has sucked even before the pandemic, but it became so much more worse with it. I felt like I couldn't go anywhere or I could die. So for the last two and a half years, I worked from home gotten groceries delivered, and done all of my shopping online. Also, I'm single and I have no kids. My dating life was barely alive before and since the pandemic had started, it has been in a coma. My only communication is through work, which is mostly just emails, as I'm a freelance writer. I barely talked to anyone these past couple of years, so I think it was the loneliness and boredom that led me to click on the link. It started as advertisements on websites after I had searched for the best horror movies to watch. Those are my favorite kinds of films and I'm always looking for low budget indie ones or foreign ones that I haven't seen. I didn't notice the ads at first since I tend to ignore them, but it eventually became the only ad that I would see. The ads were pretty basic. They had Fear for Life written in white over a black bar. And then it had that fake glitch where the words would blur and move before fading to black. When the words were gone, I could see a faint skull hidden underneath all the black. 
I had been noticing it for about a week. I finally clicked on it after an extra slow stretch of work. It took me to a website called fearforlife.com. There wasn't much to the website. On the bottom was a countdown until Halloween, along with a counter and map so you could see where the webpage visitors were from. I think that I may have been the first visitor since it didn't show any page views when I first went there. There was also text that stated, Are you ready to fear for life? I figured being scared would be better than being bored out of my mind, so why not? Although I didn't expect anything to happen anyway. I clicked on the link and it just went to a blank page at first. I was waiting for something else to happen, like a sign-up page or more information to appear, but there was nothing. After staring at the page for a while, I clicked in the middle, and then I went to another page that stated, Congratulations, you have been approved to fear for the rest of your life, but don't worry, it'll all end on October 31st. I wasn't sure if it was trying to say that being afraid would be over at the end of October, or if my life would be over. Of course it was just some silly website, and I didn't even enter any personal information. I wondered how it was supposed to work. Maybe the website put cookies on the computer, or I accepted notifications without realizing it. I put my computer on standby and I got ready for bed. That night, I woke up at midnight and thought that I heard a noise. I quietly climbed out of bed and walked over to my door. I stood still and listened. It sounded like someone was whispering something down the hallway. I tried to hear what was being said, but it was just gibberish. I couldn't make out any words. I reached under my bed and grabbed the baseball bat that I kept there for emergencies, and then I returned to my doorway. Looking down the hall, I saw a faint glow coming from the entrance to my office. The whispering continued and grew faster as I went down the hallway. When I came up to the door to the office, it suddenly got quiet. I leaned around the entrance to look in and didn't see anyone in the room. I noticed the green light above my monitor, signaling that the camera was running. The monitor was turned on but the screen was blank. I walked over to the camera and leaned in to cover the lens, but suddenly an old man appeared in the monitor and began the loud whispering that I had heard earlier. It startled me and I stumbled backward, falling onto the ground. The man's eyes had darted toward me and he screamed. There wasn't much lighting on him, but I could see the bone through the skin on his face, and his eyeballs looked like they were floating in the sockets. He had no eyelids or tissue around them. I got up and turned off the monitor, averting my eyes from the screen as best as I could. And now with my heart beating fast, and that horrible image of the man stuck in my head, it was going to be tough to fall back asleep. Tomorrow, I would deal with what I was sure was a virus on my computer from that stupid website. I went back to my room and I climbed into my bed. The clock showed at 12.30am. I closed my eyes for a long time and didn't think that I would fall back asleep. But when I looked at my clock again, it was 2.45am. I started to close my eyes again when I heard somebody knocking. It sounded like it was coming from the front door. 
I picked up my bat again and went to check it out. I had curtains covering the sidelights windows on each side of the door so I couldn't see what was out there. However, I could tell something was moving outside from these shadows that the porch light had created. I pulled back a tiny portion of the curtain and I looked out. There was nothing in front of the door. The porch extended in front of my living room so I went to look out those next. I lifted the shit on one of the windows and peeked out but I didn't see anything here either. There was another knock at the door when I dropped the shade. I walked back over and didn't see movement through the curtain this time. I pulled it to the side and the same man from the computer was staring back at me through the window. His bulging eyes and bony face were pressed up against the window. I shouted and let go of the curtain. The door handle started moving and I quickly confirmed that it was already locked. Go away, I shouted through the door. I'm going to call the police. He knocked on the door again and then I heard him bump up against the window. I knew that he would be staring in again if I moved the curtain so I waited for a few minutes. Finally, I heard him walk away. Before returning to my room, I ensured that all the doors and windows were locked. And then I got back in bed but I couldn't fall asleep. I kept thinking about the stupid website. I didn't provide any information to that website so I don't know how they got my address. Also, whoever did the makeup on the person at my door did a great job. It looked way too real and I'm afraid I won't be able to get their face out of my mind anytime soon. I'm lying in bed now trying to find the motivation to get up and check on my computer. I'll add an update if anything else happens, but I would stay away from that website if I were you. I finally got out of bed and I went to my office. There was no green light on the camera and the computer was off. I switched it on and then I went and made myself a coffee. Luckily, there were no deadlines for me this week so I didn't have anything important going on. I still wanted to spend some time looking for other writing opportunities but first, I had to run my virus scan. This was probably the only time that I hoped there would be a virus or a malware on my computer. But when the scan ended and there were no problems, I was disappointed. The day was mostly uneventful. I fell asleep at my desk though and when I woke up, my computer was on that website again. It was on the page with the blank black screen and a skull in the background that I hadn't noticed before. It was similar to the face that I saw on my screen and at my door the night before. I clicked the X in the corner to close the window and got up from my desk. Fresh air sounded good so I went outside for a walk. These warm sunny days in the fall were great and I knew that it would be only a matter of time before I would be shoveling the snow off of my driveway. I walked through my street and into the wooded trail that connected some of the roads in the neighborhood. The leaves were starting to change color and it was a nice peaceful walk until I heard the crunching of a stick off the trail. It was probably just a groundhog or a different small animal, but I was still a little on edge from what had happened last night, so it made me a little nervous. I kept going around a curve and further away from the houses. I heard the crunching sound again and it sounded like somebody was walking through the bushes not too far from me. 
I couldn't see who was out there, but I could tell that they were getting closer. I didn't see whatever was out there, but I took a picture of where the noises were coming from so I could see if anything was there when I got back home. I picked up the pace and started running through the trail. The noises also got louder and stayed close behind me. Finally, I made it out of the pathway and onto the next street. I felt safer being in the open in front of all the houses. Someone was likely to be home if I had to scream for help. When I had walked far enough away from the trail entrance, I turned around to look back into the woods. I didn't see anything but felt like I was being watched. When I returned home, the door to my house was open part way. I know that I had closed and locked it before leaving on my walk. I didn't know whether to call and wait for the police or to go in and check it out myself. I leaned in through the door. Hello? I yelled. There was no response, and I didn't hear any noises inside. But I knew that I would feel better if the police went and checked it out first. After calling the non-emergency number, I went to the bottom of my driveway to wait. I watched the house until the police car arrived. Two officers got out and I told them that the front door was open, but I knew that it was closed and locked when I had left. They went inside and after a few minutes they had returned. There was no one inside and they didn't see any signs of forced entry. They told me to look around and I could have a police report filled out if anything was missing. They said that it was probably a faulty latch or it wasn't closed right. As they were pulling out of my driveway, one of the officers said, You might want to clean up your office. It looked pretty messed up in there. I thanked them and I went inside. My front door only has a deadbolt so it has to be unlocked inside or with a key. The only ones with a spare key are my parents and they would have let me know if they were stopping over. My chair was knocked over and the papers that had been on my desk were on the floor. The monitor was also covered in fingerprints and smudges. It is in a touchscreen and I don't remember it being that dirty. Nothing else in the house was out of order so I went to work cleaning up my office. I picked up my chair and put the papers on the desk. There were crumbles of dirt on the desk and keyboard. And my hands felt dusty and had black smudges after handling the documents. I also noticed a small trail of dirt from my office, getting smaller as it went to the front door. I guess I had wanted things to be more interesting, but this stuff isn't what I had in mind. After finding my screen cleaning spray, I scrubbed off the monitor and I got some of the smudges off, but no matter how hard I tried to clean it, some of the fingerprints just wouldn't come off. I felt uneasy for the rest of the night especially with what had happened in my office. Where did all the dirt come from and why was so much in the office instead of by the front door? And how did somebody get into my house in the first place? I double and then triple checked all the locks on the doors and windows before going to bed. Even though I was anxious, my exhaustion took over and I fell asleep fast. I awoke to the buzzing of my phone as it vibrated around in the nightstand. It stopped for a few moments and I was almost back to sleep when it started buzzing again. My phone was pretty much always on vibrate and 
I wanted it on in case my parents had an emergency at night. I picked it up, worried that it might be them. The screen showed that it was an incoming video call from a number that I didn't recognize. I swiped down to decline it and saw that it was after midnight before I set it back down. It began vibrating again almost as soon as I had set it down. After swiping down a second time, I turned off my phone and set it on the nightstand. I almost fell asleep when I heard a loud thud coming from the outside of my room. Now I was wide awake and grabbing the bat before I stood up. I made my way cautiously to my bedroom door and looked out into the hallway. I had thought that I had closed that door before going to bed, but in my sleep-deprived state, I wasn't sure. I saw the dim glow coming out of my office, which meant that the monitor had to be on. Taking some deep breaths and gripping tightly onto the baseball bat, I slowly walked toward the light. I stopped right before the open door and leaned against the wall. It was quiet, but I could hear the faint sound of somebody talking. It was like when you're in a loud restaurant and you hear all the voices at once, but you can't make out any words. This was in a whisper, though. While I was building the courage to enter the room, the voice stopped and the dim light went off. The light switch was just inside of the doorway, and I reached my arm around and flipped on the switch. I was positive that something was going to grab out of my arm, but luckily, nothing happened. It took me a minute to get accustomed to the light before I could step into the room. The chair had been knocked over again and the keyboard was on the floor. Everything else looked normal. I searched around the rest of my house, but I didn't find anything. While I was walking back to my room, I heard my phone buzzing again. There's no question that the power was off when I left the room. The buzzing stopped before I made it back. When I walked through the doorway, I could see that the screen was on and that there was somebody's face on there. I backed out of the room and closed the door. I went into the other bedroom next to the office and I closed the door. This room was barely used and only had a mattress on the floor covered with sheets and a blanket. I sat down on it and listened for other noises in the house. And then it seemed like all of a sudden the sun was shining in through the window. I slowly got out of bed and walked over to my bedroom. I picked up my phone from the nightstand and saw that I had a voicemail from the number that I didn't recognize last night. I've got it and I'll play it now for you. I also remembered the picture that I took yesterday when I was out on the trail. There wasn't anyone in the picture but when I looked closer, I thought that I could see someone. I'll add it right now. I'm hoping that it's just my imagination, and somebody will tell me that there's nothing weird on there. I'm not quite sure what to do next. It's been a few days since I last updated, and I want to fill you all in on what has been happening. I went through every inch of my house the morning after my last post, and it's a small one-story house with a basement, so it didn't take long to look through. There was nothing else out of the ordinary except for dirt smudges on the bottom of my bedspread. I shuddered, thinking that someone must have been in my room while I was sleeping the night before. But I'm glad that I didn't wake up to see whatever was there. At the suggestion of others, I found my attic access, which was in the ceiling of my closet. 
I had to get my ladder out of the garage to climb up there. After sliding the wooden cover out of the way, I climbed up and walked carefully along the wood beams, looking around with my flashlight. I didn't find any evidence of someone being up there. As I walked back to the entrance to the attic, I heard my front door closing. I couldn't see much through the square opening, but I heard footsteps coming down the hallway toward my room. And this was followed by my bedroom door slamming shut. I crouched down and slid the cover over the opening. I could hear them climbing up the ladder, so I sat down on the cover to hold it in place. And then I felt the cover being pushed. And they were able to lift me up a little bit, but luckily I was too heavy. After a few minutes, they stopped and it got quiet. I was listening for the sound of them stepping down the ladder, but I didn't hear anything. It had to have been at least 10 minutes that I waited without hearing a thing. I quickly climbed off the cover and slid it open just a little. I saw part of the ladder, but I needed to open it more to tell if anybody was still on there. And when I started moving it more, I felt a big push on the cover, almost sending it out of my hands. Before I got it back into place, I caught a glimpse of what was trying to get up here. It was something different than what was at my door the other night. There were clumps of long brown hair on top of its bony head. Its jaw was jutted out to the left, and the bone was broken and jagged beneath its nose. The thing stared up at me with one eye sunk deep inside the socket, and the other dangling out of the socket. I jumped back on the cover, putting all my weight on it. I felt the thing pushing me up again. When it finally stopped, I waited a much longer time before trying to see if it was safe to leave. When I slid it slowly off, I expected a hand to reach out and grab me, but nothing was there. I went down the ladder and closed the attic cover. My phone was sitting on the floor, which wasn't where I had left it. When I picked it up, it felt dusty and it was covered with smudges like my monitor. I wiped it on my shirt and then I called my parents. I really needed to get out of here for a while. They were glad that I called and said that they would be happy to have me stay with them for a few days. I grabbed a backpack and threw in some clothes and everything else that I would need for a few nights stay. I had ordered a couple of Wi-Fi cameras after this all had started and spent some time getting them set up. One of them I had set up on my front porch and the other in front of my computer screen since those seemed to be the places where most of the weird things were happening. While checking to ensure that I had everything, I heard some noises in the basement. I grabbed my keys, wallet, and phone, and I headed for the door. When I went past the basement door, I heard somebody coming up the stairs. I ran outside, locked the door behind me, and got into my car. After making sure that my car was empty, I drove to my parents' house. When I got there, I greeted my parents and then brought my things into my old room. I hadn't spent the night at their house in a very long time. They too hadn't been out in a while, so I didn't have to be afraid of getting sick from them. The first couple of nights there were great. I got caught up on my sleep and felt so much more while rested. I had a couple of notifications from my front porch camera the first few days, but it was from squirrels or chipmunks running into the view of a camera. I took a break from the computer and I didn't use my phone that much either during this time. 
The only phone calls that I received were from telemarketing or scams. Last night, however, things began to change. I got a notification from my front porch camera. I could see someone standing just barely in the view of the camera. They stayed still for a while before coming up to the porch and it looked like they were wearing something over their head, but I couldn't tell what it was. I was happy that it wasn't the creepy-eyed skull guy that was there before, although this one also made me uncomfortable, especially once it had started talking. Later that night, I received a notification from the camera in front of my computer monitor. The screen was blank for a while before it went to the Fear for Life website. I'm glad that I wasn't at my house during these events, but I am a little worried that by staying at my parents' house, that they will become involved in this too. I think that I will at least stay another night here and then try to figure out what to do next. I've included the videos here in case you would like to see what happened. I'll post them now. It's looking pretty nice outside today, so I'm going to try to enjoy it before it starts getting colder again. Hopefully, since I'm not at my house or near my computer, I won't have any problems when I go for a walk. I went a few days without having any problems at my parents' house. There were a couple video calls that I didn't answer, but nothing strange happened at their house. The only notifications that I received were from my cam or from the wind or the raccoons that must live near my house. Yesterday, my parents went out for lunch and shopping, and I took the time to sit, relax, and enjoy the silence around me. I started drifting off to sleep while sitting on the couch but I was pulled out of it by a knock coming from the patio door. Now their house backs up to the woods, so there shouldn't be any reason for somebody to go to that door. I got up and I peered around the entryway to the kitchen. The blinds were partially closed. From the light coming through, it didn't look like anybody was there. But still, I waited a minute before walking to the door. And then I opened the blinds all the way and was relieved that no one was there. I was worried that I put my parents in danger by coming here, so I figured that I would better go outside and take a look. I slid open the door wall and I stepped outside. The backyard was empty, but I thought that I saw movement in the woods at the end of the yard. When I looked around to find the movement again, I couldn't see anything. After pulling up my phone, I zoomed in and I took a picture of the woods. Before I could look at the picture, my phone vibrated to notify me that there was movement detected at my front door. The camera had saved a short video clip. I played it three or four times, but I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. I received a few more notifications, but it was the same thing. Even looking closely and zooming in, I couldn't see anything moving. Needing a distraction, I turned on the TV and sat on the couch. My phone vibrated again, but this time, it showed that motion was detected from the camera that was by my monitor. Nothing showed on the camera at first, but I could hear something moving near it. It sounded like something was being dragged across the floor, and then something showed up in front of the camera, causing me to send my phone flying across the room. It looked like the thing that had been at my door the first night when this all had started. With my heartbeat rapidly increasing, I went over and picked up my phone. There was a new text message waiting for me. 
It was from a five-digit number and it said, Go home. I responded back with, No. Shortly after, my phone vibrated from another text message. It was a different five-digit number with an image attached. Risking a virus or malware, I downloaded the image. It was a picture of me standing on the patio of my parents' house. My phone vibrated again. Another message came through and another image. This one was my parents' front porch. My phone vibrated again and again as more pictures came through. Another one looked like it was the window to my parents' bedroom. And then the next was one outside my bedroom. All these messages and images kept coming from different numbers and showed different parts of the house. They were all taken from outside the house too. And then the original five-digit number messaged me. It said, go home. It repeated the message about ten times and then said, or we'll come inside to find you. I didn't want to put my parents in danger, but I also really didn't want to go home. Especially after what I had saw on the camera. My concern for my parents went out, so I texted them and said that I needed to get back home for a writing job and that I would talk to them soon. I grabbed all my things and I got in my car. On the way back, I made a stop at the police station. After showing all the text, pictures, and videos and telling them about the website, they said that it was probably a friend playing a prank on me. I told them that I was positive that it wasn't a prank from a friend but I don't think they believed me that this was real. But they did at least take my information down and said that they would take a look into the website. They also promised to send a police car to drive by my parents' house later tonight. And then they recommended that I call the police if anything happens while I'm back home. That was a very disappointing stop. I took my time driving home and when I finally pulled into the driveway, I just sat there. I started thinking of everything that had happened so far. Nothing had harmed me, but I was definitely afraid. I began wondering if maybe they won't hurt me and they're just trying to scare me. The website was definitely accurate about being afraid, even though I still didn't understand how it worked. I read a comment that somebody posted that maybe they were coming in through my computer. As much as I don't believe that could happen. I don't know how else they could have gotten inside. However, if that is true, then they could have easily hurt me by now, so maybe I don't need to be so afraid. Although, it is hard not to after seeing what was at my door, on my monitor and now on the cameras. I'm going to go check around the outside of my house once I can gather the courage and then go inside. Oh, and here are the other videos that I mentioned. It was weird how there was nothing on the video from in front of my house, especially with how many notifications that I had from it. It's been a rough couple of days since I last updated, but I'll continue where I left off last time. After sitting in my car in the driveway for a while, I finally got out and walked around my house. The doors were locked and the windows were closed and there was no sign that anybody had broken into it. I unlocked the front door and went inside. The first thing that I noticed was a musty smell like an old damp basement. I opened a couple windows in the living room to let in some fresh air, and then I began checking each room. The bedspread and sheets in my bedroom were bunched up at the bottom of my bed. I know that I didn't leave it that way, 
I went into the office next. The chair was lying on its side on the floor. The monitor was on and the fearforlife.com page was opened up. It had a different picture this time and looked like the thing that showed up on my camera while I was at my parents' house. There was also dirt on the desk and around the floor, but I didn't vacuum it up last time so I'm not sure if that was new. Next, I checked my attic again but this time I just peeked up there. I didn't want to have anything surprising me on the ladder like last time that I went up there. Luckily, I didn't see anything. The last place to check was the basement. The wood stairs creaked as I went down to the cold cement floor. There wasn't much down there, just some boxes, a ping pong table, and various other things that I didn't use too often. My basement was a big open area with a separate room for the furnace and some storage shelves. I always keep the door to that separate room closed, so of course, it had to be partway open. I pulled the cords to turn on the lights that I passed on my way to the room and I stopped a few feet from the doorway. It didn't sound like anybody was in there so I pushed the door all the way open, letting more light flood into the room. There was a light in the back of the room behind the furnace. That was also the only spot where somebody could have been hiding. As I started walking back there, the door slammed shut and I was plunged into darkness. I froze in place. The furnace shut off and the fan slowly stopped. I didn't hear anything else until I took a couple steps forward. It came from behind me and sounded like a pair of cleats clacking against a hard floor. I stopped and the noises stopped. And then I took a couple more steps, which were again followed by the clacking sound on the floor behind me. I kept walking around the furnace and I was too afraid to turn on the lights. I could hear it following behind me so I made my way back to the door. I opened the door and stepped out, shutting it behind me. It slammed into the door as I took additional steps. I was about to run to the stairs when I saw the long-haired skeleton that I had seen the other day on my ladder when I was coming down from the attic. It was on the other side of the stairs, watching me. It wasn't moving at all and it looked like a Halloween decoration. However, when I stepped forward, it also stepped forward. I took another couple of steps forward and it did the same. And then I stepped back and it stepped back. It was closer to the stairs than I was and I could tell that it would get to me before I made it to the first step if I ran there. I looked over at the ping pong table and stepped toward it. With each step that I took, it took another step toward me. I got to one side of the table and walked around it, until the thing was on the other side of me. I needed to switch sides with it so I could be by the stairs though. I stepped toward the other side and it stepped closer to me again. This wasn't going to work so I tried stepping backwards. It went backwards too and it was going the way that I had hoped it would. I took a few more steps and now I was closer to the stairs with the table separating us. I took a deep breath and then ran to the stairs. It ran after me but stopped when I stopped about halfway up. It was right at the bottom of the stairs. I turned to face it and took a step backward up the stairs. It stepped backwards and away from the first step. I made it the rest of the way up like that and I closed the door behind me. 
I ran outside and called the police. While I was waiting, I watched the door to make sure that no one came out. When the car pulled up, I was disappointed to see that it was the same officer that had come over before her. He walked around the outside first and then went in. Nothing's in there, he said after coming back out rather quickly. Are you sure that you saw someone? Yeah, there are two people in my basement, I said. The officer looked annoyed. Well, I went down there and I checked everything. Make sure it's an actual emergency if you call us again. I said thank you to him and he went in his car and drove away. I had wanted to say thanks for nothing but I didn't think that would have gone over very well. I went back inside and I looked into the basement. The lights were still on down there and the door was open to the furnace room. I didn't want to go down there again, but I felt that I had to and the officers said that he checked so maybe it would be safe. After going down the stairs, I walked to the furnace room and looked behind me. Thankfully, nothing was there. The light was on behind the furnace, so I turned it off after confirming nothing was there. And then I turned off the remaining lights and I went upstairs. Nothing else happened that day, but at night, I woke up again around midnight. I was lying on the right side of my bed facing the wall and I felt the mattress sink down on the left side. The bedspread had moved and I grabbed onto it so that it wouldn't be pulled away from me. And then I felt a cold breath on my neck that reeked of mold and rotten meat. I bolted out of bed and ran outside, calling 911 on the way. Unfortunately, it was the same officer and the first thing he said was, Ah, oh, great, it's you again. He went inside and came out pretty quickly after what a surprise, and nothing was in there and it doesn't look like anybody broke in, he said. And then he climbed in his car and rolled down the window. You do know that we can find you if you waste our time again. I tried to tell him that something was really there and that I wasn't lying, but he ignored me and drove off. I slept in my car the rest of the night with the doors locked. Before I went to bed the next night, I set up a camera facing my bed to see if something would happen again. At some point during the night, I got up to go to the bathroom, and when I came back, the covers were pulled down on the other side of the bed. I thought about how nothing had hurt me so far. Also, somebody had replied to an earlier post that I made that, this is your life now, so maybe I just needed to learn to live with it. I lay back in bed and I fell asleep. I watched the video the next morning and saw what had gotten into my bed. It could have hurt me if it wanted to, but it didn't so. I felt a little more safe. The next couple of days, there were more noises in the house and visitors at night, but it didn't really bother me as much anymore. Of course, I still didn't understand how the website was able to do all this, but if it was only trying to scare me, it wasn't that big of a deal. Plus, it would end tomorrow on Halloween. I meant to post this earlier, but I fell asleep while typing it up. I just went to the kitchen to get a cup of water and noticed all the sharp knives were missing from the knife block that I keep in the counter. I'm back in my room now with the door closed and locked and wondering what to do. There are noises coming from above me in the attic and out in the hallway. My phone just buzzed a bunch of times from notifications from my cameras. There's someone at my front door again and I just watched something crawl out of my computer monitor. 
Now someone is knocking on my bedroom door and I heard the cover from the attic slide open. I move my dresser in front of the closet door to block it. And there is also somebody staring in at me through my bedroom window. Now the knocking is also coming from my closet door and they are all whispering like they were in the videos. I was able to record it and reverse the audio like somebody had told me to do before. They are all saying, five more minutes until Halloween. Today's episode is also sponsored by Dave. If you're living paycheck to paycheck or struggling to make ends meet, the holidays may be a really stressful time for you. The stress of not only having to pay for regular bills and costs is worrisome enough, but now add in purchasing presents for loved ones and supplying food for holiday parties among many other things. For what's supposed to be the happiest time of the year, it can be super stressful, right? But with Dave, you can get your money sooner so you can spend more time enjoying the holidays with your loved ones, not worrying about how much money you have to get through the week. Now what is Dave exactly? Dave is the banking app that can help you get up to $500 instantly with extra cash. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit checks. Now how convenient is that? This allows you to have that extra money in advance which makes it so much easier to buy those last-minute gifts for family members and friends, plus allowing you to catch up on bills. Those hang-ups that have been stressing you out, you can finally tackle those thanks to Dave. Millions of people have already downloaded the Dave app to get the financial relief that they need with extra cash. So if you're in a pinch and need some extra help, download Dave and think of it as a helping hand from future you. Download the Dave app from the App Store right now or go to dave.com. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com legal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. I was a park ranger and there is something malevolent in the deep woods of Maine. Written by Avatar of Horror. It may surprise you to know that almost 90% of Maine is covered in forests. Even in this modern age, there is true wilderness that hides mysteries to be explored. It's one of the reasons that I became a park ranger. The chance to be in the outdoors and to enjoy the wild, untamed wilderness. I know better now. I know better than to explore that which should be left alone. And now, I warn you. After getting my dream job, I was assigned to a small ranger station up in northern Maine. The area was stunning in its natural beauty. Trees hundreds of years old and grew to touch the sky and rocky terrain led to a wonderful landscape of hills and valleys. Ever since I was a scout as a child, I had imagined being able to enjoy this serenity as my actual job. And here it was in reality. The ranger station was a converted log cabin which gave me an instant feeling of rustic warmth. Inside, a fire was crackling and an older man was tending to it. I walked in, hand extended. Uh, hi, I'm the new ranger assigned here. I'm glad to meet you. I waited in awkward silence and dropped my hand as the man ignored me for a few minutes before, turning around and standing tall. 
He was a stout and portly man with graying hair who looked me up and down before walking away from me over to a table with a coffee pot. I sat in silence while he poured himself a cup and let the steam rise as he sat down in a large wooden chair. So, you're the new whelp they're sending me. The man took a long drink from his mug. His voice was raspy like he had smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. But yes sir, Ranger Parson here and ready. I uttered almost giddily. Another silence as the portly man glared at me. That is way too much energy for this time of the day. Sorry sir, just excited. No more of this sir stuff. The name's Hicks, so please use it. He put his mug down and got up from the chair, grabbing his coat off a rack and gestured for me to follow. Hicks led me to the ranger truck and gestured for me to get inside. Now, come on, whelp, let's get you acquainted with the woods here. We drove in silence for a while as we navigated the truck through some rough dirt roads weaving through the thick forest, as I admired the beauty of it all. So listen up, parson. This job is life and death for folks, so you need to be alert and ready at all times. My back unconsciously sat upright and straight. Yes, Hicks, of course. We arrived at the top of the ridgeline, looking out over a vast swath of forest. Hicks got out and I followed, walking to the edge where he was standing. The sun was going down and the red sky made the area look like something out of a painting. My admiration for the natural beauty was broken when Hicks shoved a pair of binoculars on my hand and gestured out to the vista. From here you can see the three fire lookout stations. Motioning to the three specks of light in the now darkening forest distance. We'll get you acquainted with the fire watchers as we've had some issues recently. I dropped the binoculars. Issues. Hicks nodded. Oh, some folktales tell of something that inhabits these woods that kills or causes people to go missing. It's all nonsense, of course, but kids and weirdos have been certain it exists and have been combing this place for proof, causing panic and being destructive to the environment. Spooky folktales were hardly anything new to me. Something. Oh, some such nonsense that started with tales of people going missing in the woods, only to have people swear that they see them later. The main culprit for this silliness was a group of hikers who were found dead back in the 70s. Though I guess there's been tales of similar fates for years before. I admit that I swallowed a bit hard. What happened to them? Hicks rubbed his hand on the back of his head recalling. Well, unfortunately a bear, a big one it seems, had clearly gotten them. As there were claw and bite marks that ripped through them in their tents. Nasty stuff. To this day, we'll get reports of people claiming they saw a bloodied hiker or even an old frontiersman calling out for help with those who go looking for them not returning. Hicks cleared his throat, and his raspy voice returned. Idiots have come out here littering and almost starting forest fires looking for signs of these ghost people, or monsters, or whatever they are. Especially ever since those true crime podcasts. You know, the Deep Forest one. It came out about the camping incident, speculating wildly about what really happened. Hicks gestured to get back into the truck, 
and we began to drive to the ranger station. I'm not familiar with that podcast. The dang thing put this area on the radar of every wackadoo out there, and it makes our jobs miserable as we often have to go rescue the idiots who don't properly prepare for actual wilderness. I sat and took in what Hicks had said, watching the now dark forest go by, illuminated only by the truck's headlamps. Uh, question, has anybody actually gone missing after seeing these lost people in the woods? It was a surprise to hear Hicks' hesitation after his otherwise completely dismissal just a few minutes before. The woods here are old, very old, and unforgiving for those who don't treat it with respect. People have gone missing but all can be explained by getting lost or having an unfortunate encounter with the wildlife. He sighed and gave a forced laugh. No monsters are out here. The next few months were delightfully uneventful other than the occasional idiot, as Hicks always called them, getting hurt or needing help. I became friends with one of the fire watchers at Point Alpha by the name of Iris. Her soft voice often called over the radio just to chat at night about the stars whom she stared at fervently while on her watch. The other two towers checked in but seemed to relish in the isolation, never wanting to engage. And then the day came when a motley group of six younger folks made their way up to the ranger station. I say younger as if I'm an old coot and Hicks was clearly rubbing off on me. Almost all were on their phones casting the TikTok or other social media. The guy leading them was lean and sported a short beard and he walked towards Hicks and I while his compatriots dreamed their entry into the woods. Get ready. Hicks' gruff voice mumbled to me. What brings you here today, son? He called out to the young man approaching. Hey there, officers. We are just filing our camping plan. Who tried to shove some papers in Hicks' hands, but he was not bemused and nodding over to me to take them. Oh, we're not officers, son. We're park rangers. Are you sure you folks are ready for a few days in these deep woods? This place ain't exactly the easiest one to camp in. The young man looked almost hurt. Oh, well, that's exactly why we're here, officer. We're doing an on-location episode of our podcast. I'm sure that you've heard of it. You know, the deep forest. Any hint of amusement now left Hicks. I see. And what exactly will you all be doing out there? By now, a few of the group had walked over to the young man and a young woman called out. Hey, Josh, is everything okay? I want to get some recordings before we set up camp. Yeah, no problems, just letting the officers know that we're going to be out here. He gestured to the two of us as the young woman took out a small microphone attached to her phone. Cammy, let's start with these two officers. Would you two tell us what you know of the mystery of the Deep Forest Seven? You know, the campers who met Grizzly ends out here in the wilds back in the 70s. Shoving the microphone in Hicks' face. Hicks shot daggers in the girl's direction who seemed oblivious. Listen here, good. Josh, was it? You and your little cohort will respect the rules or I will personally throw you out of these woods. Do not camp within 100 feet of any water source. Do not under any circumstances violate the campfire rules. And I better not hear of you all vandalizing these woods. 
you are expected to return them as pristine as when you went into them. And most importantly, do not dig anywhere. Hicks then turned and walked away back into the cabin, leaving them with me. Oh, well, he was no help. What about you, officer? What strange things have you seen out here? Ever seen any previously missing campers out in these woods? As he said, we are rangers, not officers. There's nothing strange here, just a beautiful but true wilderness. So be safe out there. The girl previously called Cammy pulled the microphone away. I think that'll be a good intro as we cut to our next segment, talking about how the campers thought everything was safe too before being killed. Josh nodded. Well, hey, officer, we'll keep the forest all nice and neat, and we'll see you back here in five days. There's a special spot that we're going to be camping at. Supposedly, it's where the center of the forest is. Jogging back to the others, Josh and Cammy joined the cavalcade of social media posting as they began to journey into the woods. Walking back into the cabin, Hicks was at the coffee pot, as he so often was, shaking his head and muttering, Idiots, over and over again. Hey Parsons, make sure you keep regular patrols, as I have a strong feeling that they'll need someone to come save them from skin knees sooner or later. I'm gonna head into town for a supply run. Radio me if there's anything out of the ordinary. Something in Hicks' voice was off. It was something that I hadn't seen before. Fear. Alone in the ranger cabin that evening, I heard the familiar crackle of static on the radio as the soft voice of Iris came over the line. The ranger station, this is Firewatch Alpha. You awake? A smile came across my face, hearing the call as I radioed back, putting down my coffee. This is Ranger Station. What's your status, Alpha? Oh, all quiet tonight, Ranger Station. The sky is clear and you can see a beautiful view of Mercury from up here. You know, one of these times I'm gonna have to come up and look through that telescope of yours and see what you see, Alpha. Ranger Station, is that a proposition because this is strictly a solo job up here? Well, when your assignment ends then, we'll have to meet in person. A giggle came across the radio. I think we can do that. I'll bring my telescope and... The line got to static. Alpha, I lost you for a second. You still there? As static buzzed back. Alpha, this is Ranger Station. Please respond. As only static greeted me. Iris, you okay up there? When the radio came back on, I heard screaming and crying in the background as I shut up. Ranger Station, this is Alpha. I have an emergency. Please respond. Alpha, this is Ranger Station. What's going on up there? A girl just burst out of the woods to my tower, screaming hysterically covered in blood. You need to get over here now. Hold on, Iris. I'm coming. I grabbed my jacket and first aid kit and hopped into the Ranger truck revving it at full speed up to the fire watchtower. The idiots, as Hicks had called them, must have fallen or done something stupid and gotten hurt. After a tense drive that felt like eternity, I arrived at the base of the tower and headed up the stairs to find Iris holding the girl Cammy that I had met previously. Iris gestured to me to come as I rushed forward with my medical kit. What the heck happened here? I called out examining the younger girl. Her right arm appeared shattered, hanging and jiggling from the skin and not bone, 
but slashes across her face and chest, gushed blood as I pulled out gauze to hold the wounds closed. I don't know. Iris called out, trying to shout over the screaming girl. She ran out of the woods looking like this. As I tried to apply first aid, the girl was wailing and screaming not from pain but fear. Over and over she called out, It killed them. It killed them all. What killed who? I tried to ask the girl as she flailed in Iris' arms. Her wounds got worse with each thrashing. I pulled out a sedative and injected it into her working arm, which slowly calmed the girl as Iris and I both sighed as the moment passed. Over the next half hour, we worked to apply what first aid that we could. I radioed for a helicopter medevac, but they won't be here for at least an hour. I looked down at the poor girl, her body battered and broken. I also can't seem to get a hold of Ranger Hicks. Just what the heck is going on? Iris wiped off blood from her hands, but it seemed like a futile effort, considering that it was everywhere else on her. Jesus, what happened to her? Given the slash marks and forced trauma, it looks like a bear attack, but we haven't had any reports of one around here in months. Can you stay and look after her until the medevac arrives? I need to go look for her friends, as I'm guessing that she wasn't the only one attacked. Iris nodded, the shock of it all setting in. Before you go, though, I need to tell you something. I was halfway out the door, but stopped and turned back around. The last few nights, I've been seeing something in the dark move out there. I thought that I was crazy, but it definitely has been walking around the tower. It was like it was scoping it out. I didn't say anything as I had no proof and maybe my eyes were just playing tricks on me, but after this, she trailed off looking at the bloody girl on the floor. I paused thinking of what to say, but nothing came, and I just nodded like that was the solution. It's a bear. The marks and strength, it have to be one. Iris screamed and fell to her knees. It wasn't a bear. There's something out here in these woods. It looked at me and it was watching me, and it clearly got them too. Just wait for the medevac. The others out there likely need help. As I ran down the stairs back to the truck, grabbing the rifle out of the back and heading to the direction the girl Cammy was said to walk from. The forest was dense and this would have to be an exploration on foot. The forest had never seemed darker. Like the canopy above had wrapped itself over the world and blotted out all light above. Over and over I called out on the radio. Hicks, pick up. Hicks, pick up the frickin' radio. But was met only by silence. The heavy maglite illuminated my path forward as I followed a trail of blood left by Cami. In the dark, a forest path becomes almost infinitely liminal. Feeling like you've traveled nowhere and for miles simultaneously. A stretch of blood on the ground led me to the telltale smell of wood burning and I came to find a campsite. I immediately turned away in abject disgust upon entering the perimeter as half a human torso was lying on the ground. It was mangled but the face of Joshua as it barely attached to the head. Tents were ripped and torn and at least one more body was lying prone with long claw marks raking its length with no sign of breath or life. Another was impaled on tree limbs above like it was thrown from the ground. Of the others, I could see nothing. 
I pulled the rifle off my shoulder feeling like it was the one thing of control that I had in the moment. But I was nothing but terrified and each step was labored to take moving forward. A twig snapped and I turned to face the direction of the sound, the gun noticeably shaking in my hands. Hello? I called out as if that was a great question in the situation. Is anyone there? From behind a tree, a figure fell and thudded to the ground as I rushed over. In the light of my flashlight, the portly frame of Hicks was on the ground, bleeding from a large stab wound in his stomach. Ah, oh, heck, Hicks, what are you doing out here? As I pulled off my jacket, trying to place it on his wound as he coughed up blood. I'm sorry, Parsons, uh, I couldn't stop it. I followed them and I tried to scare him off, but I couldn't stop them. Stop what, Hicks? As I saw the extent of his wound which had punched through seemingly to the other side. What happened? These idiots, they disturbed it. They awoke it before I could contain it. I tried to stop him, but I was too late. I can't believe they found it. I've spent all this time up here trying to keep it hidden and I failed. Hicks, you're not making any sense. This forest is old, ancient old Parsons, and a being lives here. It is primal wrath and anger and violence. Coughing on more blood and trying desperately to point to something at the campsite. The sigil there. It sealed it and they disturbed it just like the people before. He grabbed my shirt and pulled me forward. It's going to kill every human in this forest now that it's free. You gotta get out of here. As a clot of blood splattered out and Hicks' breath stuttered to a halt as his eyes sank back with his body going limp. I think I held Hicks' lifeless body for a good 20 minutes before coming back into myself and finally laying him down on the ground. Finally standing up, I walked to the area that Hicks had pointed to in his last moments. The ground was rough and torn with dirt and leaves and sticks showered everywhere. Running my hands through the disturbed soil, a stone effigy of a face was buried in the ground. As I ran my hands over it, more of the stone carving presented itself. It was a carved face made of leaves. The visage was terrible and gave me revulsion upon viewing it. It cracked down the center as I tried to refocus on it, as something was pooling out of the cracks. I touched it and put my fingers into the light to see fresh red blood oozing from the ground like the forest itself was bleeding. My examination stopped when I heard a scream in the distance, and I darted away from the campsite towards the sound. The scream that I had heard was human, and I heard the telltale whimpering of someone in pain. I pushed through the forest brush, trying to make my way towards these sounds, and when I showed my light, I saw one of the young girls from the group before her. She was bloodied and crying in agony. I shouldered my rifle and tried to come to her aid. Hold on, I'm coming, I called out. The phrase reminded me to check if I still had any first aid supplies and the moment of hesitation had saved my life. The claws the length of my arm slashed out in front of me, slashing across my face as the girl had vanished and I fell backwards trying to regain my balance. Looking back up, a form stared down at me sharing the same look of the stone figure buried before her. A face of leaves with eyes of burning ember shone out as if it peered into my very soul. 
The long-bladed limbs slashed down at me as I rolled aside from the blow, grabbing my rifle and wildly firing upwards. I'm no marksman, and whether out of luck or skill, the shot hit its face, and the creature screamed an inhuman howl. I wasn't going to press my luck, and I ran. I ran as fast as my legs could carry me, dropping the rifle by accident, but I couldn't look back. I didn't know where I was running in the dark as I just pushed forward, my heart pumping to the extreme with only the flashlight shining ahead. I hit a tree as I ran and fell tripping over myself, crashing into the dirt. Picking myself up, I found that I was in a clearing, one that I had never seen in the woods before. All along the perimeter, thick trees seemed to have grown to gargantuan proportions. On every tree, there were faces, human faces that screamed in eternal agony encased in the bark of the massive trunks. There were hundreds, thousands of faces all screaming to the empty darkness of the forest. Behind me, I heard lumbering footsteps as the creature had found me. It moved in the darkness of the trees. Wherever my light showed it, it faded and appeared elsewhere. It made not words but sounds that triggered something mnemonic in me. Something in me from when the first mammals appeared on the planet. It was the sound of being hunted. With nothing left to fight with, I made my way through the trees with faces and into the deep forest yet again. Behind me, like a breath of death that clung to my neck, I could feel the creature's claws closing in on me. And then I heard it. The sound of rotors. Changing direction, I darted over brush and bramble trying to get closer to the sounds. I heard my heart in my ears as I ran. With every step, the rustle of leaves came closer. I didn't even notice what had happened at first until I had hit the ground. The adrenaline shock kept me conscious before the searing pain of being cut across my back had finally hit me. It was not just the pain of being cut open, of nerves and blood spraying forward. No, it was the feeling and violence as if such a thing could be quantified stabbing into me. Whatever the thing was wanted so hard for me not to just be cut, but to feel agony and it succeeded. I fell and heard the rush of rotors and time seemed to stop for me. I was doomed now and I was so close to escape that it was all for naught. The forest itself seemed to delight in my pain as if the blood cascading from my back had nourished the ground floor, securing on the crimson ichor flowing from my body. My eyes blinked for a moment as suddenly the dark forest was illuminated. A flare from where I could not see but the last thing that my conscious mind remembered was seeing a person standing aiming a weapon at the thing behind me. My world faded into darkness. I awoke in a hospital bed, my sense of time lost. My body was bandaged to the point that I looked like I was about to receive a royal burial in a pyramid. Over the next few days, I was interviewed by the local police, the FBI, and I'm sure half a dozen other agencies whose questions I could give no answer to. I had learned the medical crew would find the girl Cammie in the watch station badly beat up, but she appears to have survived though in a near catatonic state. The other members of the Deep Woods podcast were either dead or missing. The news media had a feast of the story with wild speculation, but it was all chalked up to a bear attack as it had been before. Of Iris, there was no trace. 
The fire watcher was missing along with the others presumed to have been gotten by the wild bear. A massive search and rescue was initiated, but no survivors were found. When I was well enough to walk, I went with the search party. Their gaze on me hoped that I had some further secrets to reveal. I took them first to the bloody campground to search for the stone face of leaves buried in the ground, but it had disappeared. My fingers became bloody as I clawed into the dirt, trying to find it but to no success. I then spent the next few weeks in the woods trying to find the clearing in the woods with the faces in the trees. Every drone surveyed a guide said no such place existed. Eventually, I was deemed broken, mad even. My explanations became more evidence as it was just a bear attack because of their objective absurdity. I had become nothing more than a joke and the incident was slowly forgotten. I was in the woods yesterday, staring into the dark thicket when I heard a voice. It was soft and calm and I followed it. I followed it to a clearing that I did not recognize and in the center Iris stood. In her hand was an orange flare gun and her clothes were ripped and torn. Her hair was wreathed in leaves and her jaw was unhinged and slash marks were down her body. She stared at me with burning ember eyes. She stared at me with the rage and wrath of the forest. I was an amateur astronomer. I discovered the terror that came from space. Written by Doomed Geek. When most people hear the word moorland, they probably think of doomed heroines running across a bleak yet beautiful landscape or the cry of a demonic hound being carried on the wind. I grew up in an isolated farmhouse on a moorland in the northwest of England, and the moorland that I remember so well was a very special place. You could walk all day and not see another person, and on a cloudless night, the stars were a symphony of light. In the height of summer, the grass would become tinder dry, and fires would break out and burn for weeks. Smoke filled the air and it felt as if the world was on the verge of the apocalypse. As these seasons turned, there were crisp and clear days, and days of constant wind and rain. Snow usually waited for the new year, and when it fell, the moorland was blanketed with a thick layer that could lay untouched until it melted in the spring. I lived with my father. He had brought me up by himself since my mother had walked out on us when I was only three years old. I had no memories of her other than the ones held in photographs that I had seen. There were two photographs that I had treasured most of all. The ones of her in her homemade wedding dress and with my father on a day trip to the seaside. She had the most beautiful smile in that picture. My father was a quiet and hardworking man. He only opened up to me about my mother once. He had had a drink which was not like him. As he stared at the flames dancing on the logs in the fireplace, he told me how he had blamed himself for her leaving. How he had been distant, focused on the farm and its endless tasks. And she had been lonely and struggling with a young child, miles from her family and friends. She just stood up and walked out the door and never came back. And you know what, I don't blame her for going. 
He had said and wiped away the only tear that I ever saw him shed. For all of his flaws, he was a good man, my father. I knew that he really cared about me. One special memory of our time together is last Christmas Eve. My father had been into the nearby city of Manchester on business and had returned just before dusk. He was carrying a long, slim box which was wrapped in white paper. I was 18 years old and should have been told to be excited by the prospect of a mysterious Christmas present, but it turned out that I was not, and knew that I would spend the night wondering what was in the box. He put it on the kitchen table in front of me and said, This is best opened while it is going dark, not after it has gone light, so there's no need to wait for the morning, unless you want to. I answered him by tearing off the paper and opening the box. Wow, I said. Nestling in the box was a telescope. According to the leaflet inside, it was a 70mm refractor telescope with an adjustable tripod. There was also a fold-up map of the moon and the planets of the solar system. I was delighted with my present and I sat there beaming. Well, my father said with a big smile on his own face. Are you going to try it out? I nodded, hurried through to my bedroom and set it up by the window, and aimed the telescope out into the night sky over the moorland. That first night I spent hours turning dials and adjusting height and angles. I saw a lot of blurry stars and stars that might have been planets before finally turning my attention to the moon. It was three quarters full and it had been partially obscured by clouds up until this point. But just as I was working the focus into sharp precision, the last of the clouds had drifted away and I was left with a perfect view. The image that I was seeing sent a chill down my spine. The desolate, pitted lunar surface to me was both beautiful and chilling. I sat transfixed until dawn. Christmas Day passed happily, but I could not wait for it to go dark again so I could return to my exploration. I started by seeking out the named features of the moon detailed on the map. The ocean of storms, the sea of crises, the sea that has become known, Tycho and Copernicus, and so many more. I studied their shadows and their shape. A few nights later, I was continuing my study of the moon when a blurred object drifted across my view. I had no idea what it was. I frowned and looked out of the window with my naked eye, and I smiled. Flakes of snow were falling from the sky. I leaned back in my seat, and I enjoyed the spectacle. I didn't get to spend any more time looking at the moon through my telescope that night, as the snow fell steadily. It was late afternoon the next day before the sky had cleared. The ground, as far as I could see, was white and it would likely stay that way. Dusk fell and the temperature plummeted outside. Sheltered in my warm room, I settled down and put my eye to the telescope. It was around 1am that I saw the first of them. A line of brilliant light streaked across the sky and then another, and a third followed a moments later. I watched bewitched. I had never even seen a shooting star before. 
and here I was, witnessing their glory through my telescope. More snow began to fall around 3 a.m. I closed my eyes for a moment to wait for it to pass and woke up with a start as my alarm and went off. My father did not know that I was staying up so late. If he had, he would have reminded me about the school exams coming up in a few months' time. That would determine whether I would be able to go to university. And at first, I was fine with getting only a little bit of sleep. But after a few weeks, I started to falter. I felt like I was in a complete daze all day while I was at school, and only felt fully alert when I was looking through my telescope. And then, in the second week of February, a new sighting threw my life even further out of shape. There was no sign of fresh snow in the crystal clear darkness of the sky, and the snow that had already fallen lay as close to a frozen layer covering the ground. Only the path leading to the house had been cleared. I had been observing Venus for around 30 minutes when I saw a new light just to the west of it. I focused on this and saw a bright white circular shape, but I could not keep it in focus because I realized that it was moving at speed and it was growing larger. It was traveling in my direction. I looked out without using the telescope and could make out the light unaided. It was out over the moorland, but it seemed to have come to a halt. I had to go see what it was. I threw on the thickest coat that I had and I hurried outside. The curtains on my father's bedroom were drawn and I figured that he was fast asleep. As soon as I left the path, my feet began to crunch and slide in the snow. I was on the moorland itself by now and half walking, half running. I couldn't go any faster because of the snow without risking ending up on my backside. Every few seconds, I glanced nervously up and was relieved to see that the light had not moved. Soon, my house was a small shape in the distance. Behind me and the moorland stretched out all around me, a silent sea of white. After about 30 minutes of struggling through the snow, I was getting much closer to the light. It was circular in shape and large, at least as big as two articulated trucks stuck nose to tail. I couldn't make out any features. The light coming off of it was too intense. It was incredible and I knew exactly what it was. A UFO. If anyone had asked me a few hours before if I believed in flying saucers, I would have said that I had an open mind but I needed hard facts. Well now I had all the proof that I needed. It was right there before my eyes. I came to a halt and took a deep breath. The freezing air of the night burnt my throat and I didn't care. I had raised a hand in greeting. I had no idea if the UFO was inhabited and if it was, what by. But I wanted to show that I was a friend. Hey, I hollered. Hey, I'm here. Welcome to Earth. Feeling dizzy with excitement, I resumed my clumsy half-walk, half-run, determined to get as close to the UFO as I could. But as I planted my left boot in the snowy ground, it went in far too deep and I fell forwards. A sharp pain shot up from my ankle and I ended up lying almost face down on the ground. The pain was bad. I felt sick and I lay there for a moment, taking shallow breaths, trying not to puke. When the nausea passed, I managed to drag myself up to a sitting position. 
I sat there feeling very sorry for myself and then looked up and felt a whole lot worse. The UFO was gone. I slammed my fist down onto the snow and swore. Maybe it would come back, I thought. I could wait. But I was starting to shiver and my ankle was throbbing. I figured that it was twisted rather than broken. I thought I knew the difference having broken my arm when I was 13 and remembering exactly how that felt. But even if my ankle was only twisted, it would be swelling already and the longer that I sat there, the worse that it would get. I bit my lips and counted to ten and then got to my feet. The pain was horrible and for a second I thought that I was going to faint, but I had no choice. There was zero cell signal out there on the moorland and not a single house or vehicle or person in sight. Or a UFO, I thought bitterly. Feeling very sorry for myself, I began to hop and stumble and, at times, crawl home. It was going light by the time that I made it back and I was in a really bad way. I ended up sitting in the outside step and knocking on the door and shouting to my father for help. He came out a few moments later wearing his dressing gown. He looked shocked but did not waste time by asking me what on earth had happened. Instead, he went indoors to get a duvet which he had wrapped around me, and then he phoned for an ambulance. It turned out that my ankle was fractured in two places, and I was sent home later that day with a plaster cast on my leg. Earlier, while he had been waiting for me to be seen by a doctor, my father had asked me why I had gone out in the night. I was so tired by then and embarrassed by all the trouble that I was putting him to, but I couldn't tell him that I had been chasing after a UFO. I made up a weak lie instead about being worried about my exams and going for a walk and getting lost in the moors. I wish that I hadn't, because I felt much worse afterwards for lying to my father when he was only trying to help. I didn't get out of the house much for the next six weeks or so and divided my time between studying for my exams by myself and looking through my telescope. I did not see any more strange visitors, which was probably for the best. And as time went on and the warmer weather of spring had melted the snow, I thought less and less about UFOs and the moon and the planets and the stars. I was busy applying to universities and ramping up my preparations for my exams. In June, I sat in the exams and in July, found out that I had passed all of them with the top grade, and I had been accepted to the university which had been my number one choice. Two days later, my father died. I was heartbroken, and to this day, I don't know how I got through the arrangements for the funeral. My father was buried in the village cemetery near our home. I stood by the graveside as the coffin was lowered into the small plot and I knew for the first time what it meant to be truly alone. Back at the house, a part of me wanted to go to bed and never get up, but my father would have wanted me to go on with my life and go to university, so that's what I did. To start with, being at university was a shock to the system. I was in a city and I wasn't used to the crowds or the constant noise. There also seemed to be a boomingly loud party on somewhere every night in my student halls of residence. And when I finally found a good spot for the telescope, 
which I had brought from home carefully packed in its original box. I couldn't get a clear view of anything. There had been no light pollution over the moorland. In the middle of the city, the glare from street lamps and the offices and the apartments reduced the moons and the planets to dull shapes in the viewfinder. I was feeling pretty miserable that night as I packed up the telescope and headed back to my room. On the way, I noticed a girl standing in the foyer of the halls of residence looking at her phone. She had long blonde hair and seemed to me to broadcast self-confidence. I had seen her around before and I wished that I had had the courage to ask her out on a date. But I knew that there was no way that she would say yes. Not to a shy young guy like me from the middle of nowhere. I stared at my feet as I passed her by and when she said, Hey, I didn't think that she was speaking to me. And then she asked, Is that a telescope? And I realized that she was. I wondered how she knew that it was a telescope, but then remembered that the box still had its label on it. Uh, yeah, I mumbled. Amazing, she said. You should join the UFO Society. The what? I exclaimed. You know, the UFO Society. We go looking for extraterrestrials, and when we don't find any, we get pizza and watch movies about space aliens. Her open smile made her look even more beautiful, and the thing that I wanted most in the world at that moment in time was to impress her. So, I said, sure, I would love to join the society. I've already seen a UFO, but it would be great to see some more. Her eyes grew wide and she put a hand on my arm. My skin began to tingle and I actually felt lightheaded. Do you want to go grab a coffee and you can tell me all about it, she said. I told her about my encounter over drinks and a donut which we shared, and a couple of days later I went to my first meeting of the UFO Society. We met in a cafe and after everyone had got a hot drink to go, we set off walking. There had been sightings of mysterious lights over a derelict Docklands area apparently. No one was taking it too seriously though. There was a lot of laughter as we made our way there and I felt better than I had in a long while. Things got even better when the girl that I liked gave me a kiss on the cheek and said that it was really good to see me again. I pretty much floated along after that. The old docks were a couple of miles from the campus and it was after 9 o'clock by the time that we had arrived. There was nothing out of the ordinary in the sky above the boarded up warehouses and the litter strewn streets. The haze of a few stars made it through the pollution. People started to chat about what type of pizza they were going to get and what movie that they should all watch. I smiled and slipped away down a quiet alley. I had had an extra, extra large coffee and I needed to relieve myself. Afterwards, I headed back to the group, only they weren't there anymore. They must have not noticed that I wasn't with them and left, I figured. I couldn't message any of them because I didn't have anyone's number yet, so... I shrugged and I hurried after them. Out on the moorland, I never became lost, but there, in that unfamiliar place, I soon became disoriented. My phone was no use and the buildings, they all looked the same. I didn't know if I was walking in circles. I thought that I recognized graffiti on the wall ahead of me because I had seen it earlier, but I just wasn't sure. 
I was stressed and breathing hard, and upset now as well that the girl that I lied to just walked off with the rest of them. Tears welled up in my eyes, and I wiped them away furiously, clenched my fists and started down what I hoped was a new street. It was wide and dark as all the rest and there was something at the far end of it, something sleek and circular. My mind began to race. Was it another UFO, I wondered, one that had actually landed on Earth? It was different to the UFO that I had seen over the moorland, smaller for a start and where the craft that I had seen in the sky had filled me with wonder. I felt a brooding menace from this mysterious object. It was shrouded in darkness and silent and I was standing staring at it and wondering what I should do when a low hum started to emit from somewhere inside it. And then a light appeared near its base. The light flickered and suddenly intensified. It was so bright that I could see nothing else at first and then shapes appeared in the light. They were tall and lithe. I couldn't make out their features but I could hear them whispering. You are ours. You are ours, they were saying. Who are you? I asked them in a shaky voice as they came closer and closer. I was too scared to move, too scared to do anything but watch as one of them reached out and touched me, just below one of my eyes. I cried out, an agonizing pain was burning through me. It was the most horrible thing that had ever happened to me, and everything began to spin, and I felt as if I was falling into an endless pit. And then I blinked and opened my eyes. There was a policeman standing over me asking me if I was alright. There was a police car parked nearby. I could hear the crackle of a radio inside. I had no idea how long I had been unconscious. I tried to say something but my throat was too dry. And moments later, I passed out again. When I came to, I was in a bed in a busy ward in a hospital. It was an organized chaos with nurses attending to patients, some of who were being very rude. I lay there for a while, thinking through what had happened to me out at the old docks. There was only one explanation that I kept returning to again and again, that I had had an encounter with creatures from another planet. A nurse who had been passing by my bed stopped and said to me, Don't look so worried, we're going to check you out and make sure that you're okay. Then you can go home. How does that sound? Fine, I guess. I replied uncertainly, and she went on her way to see to another patient who was shouting about needing their meds. I had hoped that they would discharge me soon. I didn't actually feel that bad. Groggy and grimy, but apart from that, yeah, okay. I decided to go find a bathroom so that I could splash some water in my face. I really wanted a long hot shower, but... Washing my face would feel nice. I was pretty unsteady on my feet when I had managed to drag myself out of bed, and one of the other patients pointed out where the bathroom was. I wobbled along there and stood looking at myself in the mirror. I was very pale and there were bruises under one of my eyes. That must have been caused when the thing, whatever it had been, had touched me. I sighed and gingerly touched the damaged skin. As I did, a tear of blood began to fall from my eye. It trickled down my cheek, a thick crimson drop. I stared at it in horror and then the pain began. 
It was like something had exploded inside my head, and it was throwing razor-sharp fragments through my nerves. I began to scream again and again. I collapsed to my knees and kept screaming. It felt like the pain was ripping me apart. I was aware of the door opening and someone standing over me, putting their hand on my shoulder and then I was falling again into a dark and endless pit. This time when I came round, I was in a room by myself. There was an oxygen mask on my face and a drip attached to the top of one of my hands. I felt numb and nauseous and was worrying that I was going to vomit into the mask when a woman came into the room. Welcome back, she said in a quiet, warm voice. I'm Dr. Walters. She sat in a plastic chair at the side of the bed and continued. I performed emergency exploratory surgery on you earlier after you collapsed. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm still not sure what was causing you so much distress, but I did find this. She held up her hand and there was something resting on her open palm. It was around an inch long and very slender and tube-shaped. Its surface looked perfectly smooth. What is it? I asked, my voice muffled by the mask. The doctor looked at the thing in her hand and shook her head. Oh, I have no idea. It was lodged in your brain. She smiled, a tired and gentle smile, and added, Still, whatever it is, it should not have been there, and hopefully, you will be fully recovered soon. I was in the hospital for another three days before I was discharged. I had had no more headaches, and I felt ready to leave. I was not ready to go back to university. By this stage, I was feeling pretty mad with the students who had abandoned me and I had gone off the girl as quickly as I had fallen for her, so I went home instead. It was strange being back. The house needed airing out and though I had contacted all the power companies and banks and the like informing them that my father had passed away, there was still a pile of efficient looking letters with his name on it. I filed them all in the bin and decided to set my telescope up to take my mind off things. Only I remembered that I had left it at my university halls of residence. I went online instead and scrolled restlessly through news and gossip sites until they all blurred into one. No matter how much I tried to distract myself, thoughts of what had happened to me out at the old docks kept resurfacing, and I decided to do a search for alien encounters. Maybe I would find something which would help explain my disturbing experience. A lot of results came up and I clicked through a few at random until I found myself in a discussion group. There was a lot of strange chat, most of which made little or no sense to me. But a couple things that had been posted really caught my attention. One was about the poster's husband. It said that he had become withdrawn after claiming that he had been attacked by strange creatures that had emerged from a bright light. He had been suffering from a brutal headache. He had also been bleeding from one of his eyes. I felt a chill pass through me as I read that. It sounded horribly familiar. The post went on to say that he was refusing to see a doctor and she was desperately appealing for help. The second thing which stood out to me was from a man who came right out and said that he had been abducted by aliens and that online was the only place he felt he could talk about this. It struck me that he was clearly isolated and scared. 
I sat back and thought, these people are crying out in the dark. They need someone. Maybe that someone's me. I took a deep breath and replied to two posts with the same message. I think I understand. I would like to try and help. Do you want to meet? The man who claimed to have been abducted got back to me straight away. He wrote, Yes, and then the address of a cafe came up on the screen. It was miles away, but that was fine. I went outside and I opened up the garage. My father's old car was covered in dust and spider webs, and I was amazed when it started on the first time. My father had taught me to drive his car and although I had my license, I was not an experienced driver so I felt pretty nervous as I set off along the route to the cafe that I had brought up on my phone. A couple of hours later I pulled up outside the cafe. It was quiet inside. There were a couple of people working on laptops and sitting in one corner, as far from the door as it was possible to be, and there was a young man. He looked around my age and was a bundle of nerves. He twitched and ran his fingers through his hair and shifted about in his seat constantly. I ordered a drink at the counter and then went up to him, introduced myself and took a seat. He didn't need any encouragement to open up about what had happened to him. I don't sleep so good, he said, and sometimes I give up trying and I go for a walk. The world feels more peaceful at 3am and it helps. Only this time I was walking through a park near where I live, and this insanely bright light appeared ahead of me. And then these really creepy looking dudes came out of it and dragged me inside this big dark space. Can't really remember what had happened after that. I think that I blanked it out because it's too horrible to deal with. But I do recall seeing someone else like me. Someone who was terrified and was being held against their will. The next time I have any clarity is when I find myself walking in the same path in the same park. It was two weeks after I had seen the bright light. When he spoke, he kept glancing around the room as if he was looking out for someone or something. He was seriously on edge. I was trying to think of something reassuring to say to him. When a learn on my phone told me that, I had a new reply on the Alien Encounters group. It was from the woman. It said... My husband has gotten much worse since I posted that message. I don't think anybody can help him now and you should stay away. I typed my reply. I still want to try and help, please. After a moment's pause, she got back to me with, Okay, my address is below. I looked up from my phone and the young man's restless gaze had settled on me. I sighed. Look, I said to him. I don't have an easy solution for the hurt and confusion that you're going through, but would it help to not be on your own for a while? He nodded and I could see that he was on the verge of tears. In that case, I said, would you like to come along with me while I go and see this lady and her husband? They're struggling as well and I would like to help them. He smiled for the first time since I had met him. Ten minutes later, I was following a new route. The man sat in the passenger seat and he was still smiling and that made me feel good. Not just because I was helping him, but because I felt now like I had a companion on this strange adventure that I was on. We arrived at the address that I had been given, a large two-story house in its own small grounds. 
The door to the house was open and there was a woman in the driveway putting suitcases into the trunk of a car. She saw us and came over. I'm sorry, she said. I can't take any more. I'm leaving. And then she put her head in her hands and her voice broke with emotion when she said, It's a nightmare. He's not the man that I married anymore. He's become something else. Something strange and frightening. What do you mean? My companion asked. She wiped her nose with a tissue before replying. Last night he started to hurt himself. He threw himself against the walls again and again, so much so that he broke his own bones. When I begged him to tell me why he was doing this, he said that it was because they were telling him to. She went back to her car and put a final bag in, closed the trunk, and drove away without another word. I felt as worried as my companion looked. Hey, you don't have to come in with me if you don't want to, I said. I'm not used to having friends, so let's stick together. He replied and managed a little smile. I could tell that he was trying to be brave. He wasn't fooling anyone, but I appreciated the gesture. Man, let's do this, I said, injecting a bit of bravado that I didn't feel into my voice. I went inside first. The house was wrecked and in every room I looked and broken glass and crockery was scattered across the floor. Furniture had been upended and smashed. Pictures looked like they had been torn down off walls. In the kitchen, the contents of the fridge and freezer lay smeared across every surface. My companion kept a few paces behind me. I could hear his rapid, stressed breathing. And then I heard a growling sound. It was coming from a room on the other side of the kitchen. I moved towards it. My legs felt like they were going to collapse under me at any moment, but I had to see. I had to know. I entered the room. It was dark and a stink of stale sweat and worse. I covered my mouth and my nose to try and block out the nauseating odors and I looked into the darkness. There was movement. There was something in there. Something that was crawling on all fours and moving slowly towards me. Over my shoulder, my companion said, No. His voice was quiet and filled with terror, because he had seen it as well. It was a man. He had been a husband once. Now, he was a creature in a waking nightmare. Dried blood had caked the side of his face under one of his eyes, and he walked on limbs that were broken and twisted. Snapped bones emerged in places from his skin, sticking out at grotesque angles. He looked up at me, his mouth opened, and he snarled. I could see that his tongue was a bloodied lump of meat. He must have bitten it so badly to make it like that, injuring himself, as he had done when he broke his own bones by slamming himself against the walls again and again, as his wife had told us. He snarled again and then, in a low, guttural voice, he said, I am theirs. They control me and they are telling me that you must be destroyed because you are beginning to understand. Fresh blood dripped from his eye as he spoke. Well, we have to get out of here, my companion said. I didn't argue and we turned and we ran. We did not stop to look back and we were soon speeding away from the house. As I drove, I struggled to understand what I had been caught up in. The man had spoken of being controlled. 
Was it by the creatures who had attacked him? Or were they controlling him via a device implanted in his brain? And would have I become like him if the doctors hadn't removed the object from my brain? I started to shake as I thought of this once barely in control of the car. We were on a deserted country road by now with trees rising on either side. Dusk was falling and I could only see a few feet into the woods. I knew that it wasn't safe for me to be driving. I pulled over at the side of the road and sat there still gripping the steering wheel tightly. My companion was looking at me. He was pale and his voice was very shaky when he said, That man said that we must be destroyed. Are we in danger? For his sake as much as my own, I managed to calm my spiraling thoughts and considered his question for a moment before replying. I think we're going to be okay. If I'm correct, the creatures have a direct link to a person once a control vice has been implanted. Presumably, they can track a person easily enough as well. But my implant was removed, so they can't find me. We are safe. I looked at him and gave him a reassuring smile, but he was shaking his head. I'm so sorry, he said. I should have told you, but I was scared that you wouldn't let me come with you if you knew. A wave of sadness passed through me as I realized what he was saying. It's not your fault. I told him as a tear of blood fell from his eye. He convulsed as his face contorted in agony from the device implanted in his brain when he was abducted. I reached out instinctively to try and comfort him, and he turned to look at me and said in a weak voice, It's too late for me, but you can still get away. It's not too late, I said, but I was wrong. The air was filled with a deep humming sound and the road was suddenly lit up by a viciously bright light. They're here, he said. Run. Hating myself for it but not seeing that I had any other choice, I turned away from him, opened the car door and scrambled out. The light was close to blinding but I managed to scramble into the woods and took cover among the trees. From there I saw that my companion had opened his own door and staggered out of the car. I guessed a part of him, the part that he still controlled, was trying to get away as well. But he only managed to make it a couple of steps before the light had focused on him. He screamed and burst into flames. I covered my eyes. I couldn't watch. It was too horrible. After what must have been only a few seconds, a terrible silence descended. I moved my hands from my face to be met by a sickening sight. My companion, that nervous, lonely, troubled young man, was reduced to blackened flesh and bone that lay crumpled on the ground. He was dead. At peace now, I could only hope. And just beyond his remains, a craft had landed. It looked like the one that I had seen at the old docks, and as it happened there, figures were emerging from the light which radiated from it. They didn't seem to be aware that I was there, cowering in the woods, and I stayed as still and silent as I could. The figures were tall and slender as before, and as they moved closer to the corpse, I saw their true form. They were close to seven feet tall and their gray skin was hairless and smooth. Their eyes were dark hollows set in long, oval faces. They had no noses or ears that I could see and their mouths were narrow slits. 
The mouth of one was moving and it was bending over my companion's remains, which began to twitch and then slowly clumsily rise. The hideously disfigured body got to its feet. Repulsion burnt inside me. It seemed not even death could free my friend of these foul creatures' tyranny. There were more of them appearing by then as well, I thought at first, and then realized that they were people. Two men and a woman. They gathered around the raised corpse and then started to lead it back towards the vessel. I watched, gripped by shock because I had recognized the woman. I had only ever seen her in photographs before now, but I knew. It was my mother, and a new realization flooded through me. She didn't walk out on us all those years ago, as my father had thought. She was abducted, taken by the creatures when I was three years old. A storm of emotion filled me and for a moment I had hoped that I could rescue her, but I was fooling myself and desperately wishing for something that could never be. There was no hope here, only despair. One side of my mother's face was streaked with tears of blood and her limbs were twisted into unnatural shapes. Jagged stumps of broken bone protruded from her skin. She was under their control. The woman who wore a homemade wedding dress who smiled so beautifully alongside her husband on a day out at the seaside was gone. Held by fear and sorrow, I stayed hidden in the trees as she and others returned to the vessel. It rose into the sky and slipped away in a blaze of light, leaving me alone. The car was too badly damaged to start, so I set off walking. I made a promise to myself during that night that I would do everything in my power to stop these hideous creatures that left broken lives in horror in their wake. I have never been a hero, but I knew that in my heart that it was time to make a stand and fight. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed all the stories. As always, wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.